Matthew chapter 5. All right. We're going to pick up at verse 13. Jesus speaking to the disciples. And by the way, the terminology in the Greek reads, you alone. So I'm going to have you do that. You are the salt of the earth. Everyone say, you alone. You alone alone are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Everyone say, you alone. alone. Are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It was John Winthrop in 1630 who used this exact passage to establish a framework for the country you now live in. We're going to study that in a moment, but let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have commanded that as believers, trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we alone are the salt of the earth, that we alone are the light of the world. One is a preservative and the other illuminates. One preserves and the other illuminates. One penetrates, one illuminates. And so God, please, as we take a look at these two words that describe us, your children, I pray that you would bless us and equip us, that we would understand our calling in this world. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, please be seated. Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, you are the salt of the earth. You alone are the salt of the earth. Every one of the disciples who heard that understood the concept of salt. In our culture, we don't, we don't value salt as much as they did. We have refrigerators. Back then, this was the refrigeration system. This was the preservation system. This is how you lived and were able to travel distances with your preserved foods that were preserved by salt. Salt was so valuable because it was hard to get. And salt was worth a lot of money. It was a commodity. It was a currency. It was what people valued. It was what the culture operated on. So much so that Romans, Roman soldiers were paid not in gold. They were paid in salt. And this is where we get the term salary from the Latin word for salt. Salt was their commodity. It was their currency. It was what they valued. And you would be paid in salt. Oftentimes, many believe that the two words together that that come up with the word soldier have to do with salara, which this idea of salt. Others say it has to do with gold. But regardless of how we define the term soldier, we do know that salary, the word salary, comes from the payment of salt to Roman soldiers. It was a commodity. It was a currency. It was capital. Join with me. Commodity. Capital. Currency. It's important to state that. Because of this currency, because of this capital, God said, this is the value and the worth you have. The capital and the currency that the world values is everything that I just shared with you in the Sermon on the Mount. You're honest. You're merciful. 
You're gracious. You do good to those who spitefully use you. When you're persecuted, you count it all joy. Everything he defined as a disciple is what a Christian is to be. And when I put you into a dark and dying world and I parachute you onto the island of Crete, when I bring you into the community of Thousand Oaks, when I put you at the national level in a political realm, you now operate in the context of honesty and morality and purity and, and goodness. And as Titus so clearly was described by the Apostle Paul and, and Paul admonished him to speak evil of no one and be peaceable and gentle and show humility to all men. This election wasn't won so you can be visceral and mean and contentious and to sit on your side of the wall and throw the bomb on the other side of the wall and find yourself somehow satisfied and demanding your pound of flesh. You waste political capital by doing that. And question this morning... What do you want from God? Do you want justice from God for yourself or do you want mercy? Let's try that again. <laughs> Would you like God to judge you or be merciful to you this morning? You know how you get that? You give it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You want your pound of flesh? You want your justice? comes at a great cost to the level you judge you will be judged that doesn't mean that you dismiss justice but it means it comes a point where you look at it and you say is this something that God has called me to we arrived here on Tuesday by grace I think we should continue in such everyone in this room was shocked by the results regardless of what side of the aisle you're on everybody the nation is completely divided. When the, when, when the popular vote is tallied, it will still come out that Trump has more popular votes than Clinton simply because in every polling place, everywhere where votes are counted, absentee or vote-by-mail ballots, if the candidate is won in that district, the absentee ballots, if they can't override the, the final outcome, aren't, aren't added. There'll be more, more ballots for him, but not more votes simply because they don't count them. So for those of you who don't go to the polls, you're dismissed when an election is close. I'd encourage all of you to go to the polls and vote. And the popular vote will tally and we'll, we'll see it as such. But as we look at this, even still with such a close vote, the nation is divided and we're watching protests throughout the country. And many are going, well, they're just crying babies and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I know what it's like to be where they are. And I know the heaviness and the fear and the trepidation and the concern. But the church responds by, by when we're in this political contest. And as you're a bridge builder and you're engaging in a political process, and I understand the political process. I'm a politician. I'm not thrilled by the title sometimes. And, and people don't like that title upon my life. And uh, you think being a pastor, you're more strictly judged. Try being a politician. They go through everything and look at your life. But as a politician and a pastor, I understand something. I know currency in politics. I know capital in politics. I know commodity in politics. And those of you who think as you sit in your ivory tower and dismissive in your moral pietism, you have no clue of what is valued in the political sector in the public square. You don't participate. 
You sit in your Christian world and you think that you have some sort of an answer to the ills of the world by sitting back and throwing out a dismissive answer that allows you not to have to engage. And I have to tell you as a politician, you are worthless to me and I will trample you. Let me explain. On my way to where I'm going, you are of no value to me. I walk over your opinion because you have no capital, you have no commodity, you have no value. Let me explain what I mean. The currency in politics, the commodity in politics, the capital in politics is the ability to get people elected. Your third-party dismissive vote has no ability to get anyone elected. Have a nice day. Now, I'm not cruel in that sense. I'll listen. But I'm telling you in the political world, the capital, the currency, the commodity is the ability to win an election. And Christendom thinks morality and making a statement instead of making a difference has some sort of value. It doesn't in the political world. We're not listening to you. We're not listening. A politician gains political capital by winning elections. I now have the privilege because of the hard work of men and women who put their blood, sweat, and tears into an election that I sit on the dais and I'm able to rule in the affairs of men and women in this community and 130,000 people will be affected by what I do. How did I get there? Because people gave capital, they gave currency, they gave commodity by blood, sweat, and tears and brilliance. They looked at the electorate, they looked at the map, they walked precincts, they engaged, they did work. You know how valuable that is? I'm sitting with a man who can't get his business because he can't get a fire marshal approval and it's taking time. I pick up the phone and I call the city manager and I said, can you get them a, boom, next day. That is currency. That is commodity, that is capital. How did I get that? Not by those moral pietists that dismiss but by the men and women who worked. This is what the world is looking to. They're looking for a commodity, a salary, a value, salt that changes their culture. Yes, the highest Christian turnout in modern history. But what won the election was not Republicans, but Democrats in the Rust Belt who voted for Trump because they saw for their families there is no future in what we've been doing. And they took a chance with a man who the world considered vile. Every one of us, when we pulled the lever, we're like, I got to bathe. Right? But it was these men and women in the Rust Belt for decades, generations, had voted for one party. And I'm standing in opposition to a pastor of a very large church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who has influenced millennials with this idea of voting for a third party or not voting at all. I'm shocked by that. That's like me telling John Mink on how to run a worship team. He has no clue. He doesn't know capital. He doesn't know currency. He doesn't know commodity. The proof of it is in his own state. It was the only state in the union that didn't vote for Reagan in a landslide, Minnesota. It was his state that brought us Hubert Humphrey, Walter Mottdale, Eugene McCarthy, Paul Wellstone, the Democratic Farm Labor, Populist Progressive Movement, and Al Franken. It's his state that gave us Mark Dayton, the now governor and ex-CEO of Dayton Hudson Corporation, Target Stores, and B. Dalton that were influential in pushing forward the liberal agenda in America. 
In April of 2006, he was rated one of America's worst senators. He won by 9,000 votes, and those 9,000 votes came out of Minneapolis. A man who could have had an influence. Commodity, salt, salary, value, currency. Because he was moralistic and took a high ground so he didn't have to engage. I'm higher than that. I'm better than that. Politics is dirty. So's the church. I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus is running for office, you'll always be voting for the lesser of two evils. <sighs> the same... <laughs> It's his state that gave us Barney Frank and passed same-sex marriage in his state. It's his state that gave us Mayor Betsy Hodges, who is the most pro-choice mayor in America. That's pietism. I didn't do that first service. That's pietism. That's what is destroying the value, the salt, the strength of what God has called us to. I need that. (laughs) No, I don't. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. They don't care because you don't know how to obtain value. You don't know the currency of how to change the public square. And one of the reasons why you don't want to know the currency is because it's difficult. And you can seem so bold and so strong and stand in your position while the world around you melts as a subculture instead of a counterculture transforming Crete. You're making Minneapolis. Political capital, political value, salary, currency, so that we are not trampled underfoot morally to transform a culture and be a city on a hill shining for the world to see. The way you get political capital distinguished between reputational and representative political capital. Reputational capital refers to a politician's credibility and reliability. That's to be determined with Trump. This form of capital is accumulated by maintaining consistent policy positions and ideological views. We're taking a chance with him. He better do what he said he's going to do. This form of capital is accumulated through experience, seniority, and serving in leadership positions. And the currency of politics is the ability to get people elected. One of the reasons why the political world dismisses the church is because we don't have the ability to get people elected. Our people don't walk precincts. Our pastors educate their people to do nothing. And they say flippantly, vote for a third-party candidate because it's a moral statement. It's stupid. It is stupid. It's fatalistic and apathetic, and it's lazy. It makes me upset. God calls us to be the salt of the earth. It has value. It preserves. You want your voice to have that value, that currency to preserve the earth so that you can be a light that penetrates and be a beacon for the world to see and be drawn to? Or do you want to be trampled underfoot as worthless as people march their agenda to dictate to the the masses how they're going to destroy the freedoms of mankind. And that's the cry of every human being is liberty. And we sit in apathy and moral pietism and we think somehow we're effective. You don't know politics, I do. 
I know what's required to get elected. Who have you gotten elected doing that? Nobody. You've made no difference. To the contrary, your apathy has created Minneapolis. It's created Minnesota. It's the greatest progressive movement of any state in the union. Second, maybe only to California. In two years, this little church has watched as our efforts have created a school board that has, has turned, a supervisory board that's about to turn, a council that's unified that, that my opponent, at, at many times the Ventura County Star, would declare on their own and endorse me, which was shocking. That it used to be, the council meetings were the Tuesday night fights, now it's peace in the valley. That's called currency. You know how that currency came about? Hard work. People doing work. First Timothy chapter 2 says to pray for kings and those in authority that we pray, live all godly and peaceable lives, or quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. I say this to pastors. Could you please tell me the names of the school board members you've been praying for? By name? Oh, oh, you don't know them. Well, this is a pastoral epistle of exhortation to, to Timothy from Paul, you, and you're a pastor. You don't know them. Can you tell me the council members you're praying for, and could you tell me the top five issues for the school board and the city council that you've been praying for wisdom for them for? Oh, you don't know them. Oh. Well, we just trample that. Bypass you. We move on, because I got news for you. The opposition knows. They know how to get political capital, value, salt, salary, currency. We're contending in the world for light. That people would know the truth and the truth would set them free. Well, the gospel is the most important thing. I agree. But don't you think protecting the government that protects the preaching of that gospel is pretty darn important? That's what we do. Christians, you can't dismiss politics and walk away from it. Politician gains political capital by winning elections. And then when the scripture says, you're the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Good works, good works. You know what good works are? You're building something that's lasting for generations to come. Even people who don't follow the Lord understand they want a better future for their children and that socialism and communism is not the answer. Wealth redistribution is not the answer. We're trillions of dollars in debt and we've lost manufacturing, we've lost jobs. How do our kids get a job? They're in debt when they graduate from college and they have nowhere to go to work. What have we done? None of those principles are scriptural and unless we work through them and apply them and become that commodity that is valued in the public square, nobody's listening. They are. <laughs> when the Lord calls us to be the light of the world, the purpose of light is to illuminate and expose what is there. Therefore, light must be exposed before it is of any use. If it's hidden under a basket, it's of no longer use it's no longer useful i have questions for you how are you supposed to expose the lies in government if you aren't there good government happens with good people what are you doing to get them there a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden i like this comment such a city is prominent and can't be hidden 
If you see such a city from a distance, it is hard to take your eyes off of it. In the same way, Jesus wanted the people of his kingdom to live visible lives that attracted attention to the beauty of God's work in this life. I, I deliberately use those words to make Thousand Oaks a city that would shine. What do I need to do to ensure that my grandkids can have viable employment, worship their God, and raise their family in Thousand Oaks when I'm gone? It's not about me. It's about them. God's people work for future generations. We're selfless. What are we doing to ensure their future? How do we engage? How do we become salt and not be trampled, but be valued and have that preservative nature still effective to create a city shining on a hill? A light that the world would say, I want our city to be like theirs. What do we do? What do we do? Well, I'll tell you this much. When the scripture declares that we are the salt of the earth, the moral preservative, and that we are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, it takes me to John Winthrop. John Winthrop was a pastor who came with the pilgrims in 1630. And it used to be that his sermon, which was called A Model of Christian Charity, was studied by every high schooler in America. Most of you have no clue about this sermon. This was the foundational sermon that set the pattern for America for, for over 200 years. Nobody studies it anymore. Why? Because nobody bothered to get in the school board and defend its value. The salt lost its flavor and was trampled. The value of truth was no longer a commodity that we wanted to participate in because it was hard. We'd rather sit in our moralistic dungeons and throw bombs over the wall and think somehow we're effective and all we do is create enemies because of our apathy and our fatalism. This was poured into the lives of children and they studied it. And in the passage from from England over to New England to the colonies. He wrote these words to all who were on board in this pact that they had given together. And it was on board the Arbella, the ship that they were all participating in the passage together. And it was done in 1630. It was a powerful sermon. I won't go into detail on it, but I will say this. This last portion, he says as he lays out the Sermon on the Mount and how Christians are to participate in the public square and how we're to create a government that would be a blessing to humanity, he concludes by saying, now the only way to avoid this shipwreck and to provide for our posterity, he was future-centered and doing it for generations to come. We're self-centered and self-consumed. This generation came to set it for future generations. He said to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessities and serve one another. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. These are all governmental prospects. Always having before our eyes our commission and our community in the work, our community as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight and dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon 
us in all of our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, truth than formerly we have been acquainted with as we engage in the building of this community. We shall find that God, the God of Israel is among us when 10 of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, which was very clear of the war of independence. When he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. I want our city to be like Thousand Oaks. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and of all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. Almost finished. And to shut up this discourse with that exhortation of Moses, that faithful servant of the Lord, in the last farewell to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, Beloved, let, beloved there is now set before us life and good, death and evil, and that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his ordinance and his laws and the articles of our covenant with him that we may live and be multiplied and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land whither we go to possess. But if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey, but shall be seduced and worship other gods, our pleasures and profits and serve them, it is propounded unto us this day, we shall surely perish out of the good land whither we pass over, this vast sea to possess it. Therefore let us choose life, that we and our seed may live by obeying his voice and cleaving to him, for he is our life and our prosperity. You see, an election occurred, and if you think pride is yours for the day, you don't understand what God just gave you. Grace and humility is what God has called us to and more of an engagement in the public square, not apathy and fatalism, not pietism, but a currency that the world understands, which is salt. It's valued. You're not trampled. You're a city on the hill. You're a light that engages in every nook and cranny. You, 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 you penetrate and illuminate the world. I want to close was something that touched me. Because for those of you who want your pound of flesh with your victory and your vitriol, remember there's a world out there that needs to be touched, illuminated, and penetrated with the gospel. And that comes as we saw in Titus that we are to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable and gentle and showing all humility to all men. You didn't win so you could be rude. The editor of the largest pro-choice magazine on the internet wanted to interview me as a pro-life candidate and a pro-life outspoken person that travels the country and educates other pastors. She wanted to interview me about the bean patch principle. And I, I learned a long time ago it's going to be a hit piece. So I said there's 
two requirements before I interview with you. And she agreed to both. One was you need to come to church and attend and see what I do. The second is you and I need to sit down for a minimum of an hour and all I want to know is why you do what you do and I want you to hear why I do what I do before we interview. She came here with her husband and her new, new daughter. She was so touched by each and every one of you. The love of Christ was so evident in this room. The people who hugged her and greeted her, she, she was without excuse. She said, there's something special about this place. Then we went up to my office and we sat down and I began with her. I said, please tell me about your life. Why do you do what you do? What moves you? What's the why in what you do? It was compelling and touching. Her story, her life story was heart-wrenching. I was moved. And then I told her my story and she was moved. And then we interviewed for three hours. She hadn't completed the piece yet. And in the midst of the election on October 13th, which was a terrible day during the election, and Trump had come out with that awful thing that he did and said, and it was being broadcast all over the country, and I'm nauseated by it, and I'm frustrated. I'm thinking, what else? Come on, man, shut your mouth. Somebody stop the Twitter. Take his phone from him. And in the midst of this frustration, she wrote and she said, Hi, Rob, I hope you're well. I wanted to pass along a note that I sent to another person as part of an ongoing conversation we've been having, and I'd be interested in knowing where you stand on Trump for now. Here's what I wrote to this person. I guess my question is whether there is anything we could learn about Trump that would cause you to drop your support for him. I'm not being facetious. I mean, if there was evidence of him actually raping someone or saying that he secretly does support abortion rights... I still don't know if I'm going to be writing about this, but I'll level with you on a couple of my perspectives. First, I'd say that for a lot of women, knowing that Trump is a person who feels entitled to violate our bodies is tantamount to the destruction of one of the most fundamental freedoms we have, physical safety. The right to be free from intrusion, the right to exist in the world... I framed it as both a negative and a positive freedom, lest you think that bodily safety is more of a liberty than a freedom. The second point is that Trump displays increasingly many of the same characteristics that Hitler did. His style, his ideas, his rhetoric, all of these are echoes of a rising Hitler. Again, I'm not being facetious, she writes. I've interviewed genocide experts over the past few weeks, and I'm considering a story about that as well. There is nothing more threatening to the freedom and liberty than a dictator. I guess I just don't see how you can believe that Trump would protect your freedom slash liberties when it is so clear, as Glenn Beck and Eric Erickson have been arguing, that he is a serious threat to them. Again, I get that you can't abide Hillary, but I truly don't see how supporting Trump gels with your ideas and beliefs. Best, Sharona. And I responded to her. I said, Dear Sharona, the presidential election is downstream from my purpose, and she knew that because I took time to explain to her. I'm not interested in defending either candidate. Both are probably the worst our country could produce. I believe both have the potential to, to, to take our constitutional republic towards any number of isms. The nation seems to be embracing a progressive future, and with that will come, in my opinion, even greater religious bigotry and persecution. Every despot needs a scapegoat, and the Judeo-Christian religious world will be an easy target. Nobody will say anything about Sharia law or fascist dictates silencing the convictions of Christians. We Christians will become an ever-decreasing subculture of progressive America. The evangelical church is content to not be a counterculture, but instead a shrinking subculture, happy to live off the feeble scraps secularists will throw our way. The great dream of open borders, God-free society, and moral relativism may soon be realized, 
And I am a voice of minority and a small bother that will not even be worth your time to include in any future articles. Trump may lose and Hillary may win and the nation will change. Even still in a world of moral relativism, I will be an arcane reminder that there are absolutes and there is a God who moves in the affairs of men. He will have the final say regardless of how powerful we believe ourselves to be. The world will become more violent, cold, and gray. The election won't change me or my family or our faith. We will be who we've always been and do what we've always done. I will leave this earth content and settled with my maker. Politics is no longer about truth. It is now the accumulation of power at any cost. Even at the local level, I have seen that people will say and do whatever they can to get power. It is a sad day indeed. Governments come and go. God is constant. This doesn't surprise him, and I am not in despair. He has always been to me and my family peace, and I have never lost sleep while in his care. Sharona, we are on a train bound for forever, and in the span of history, this is nothing more than a gnat on the butt of an elephant. Evolution and atheism cannot explain love, but my life has great joy and meaning because of God's love. My family is amazing, and he is the reason why. The wealth will dry up, and the debt will increase, and everybody will do for themselves whatever they can justify in order to obtain the remaining feeble scraps a government-dominated society will, with insufficient reluctance, give to its servant class. Obamacare is a prime example. If there is a God in heaven and he makes children in his image, he most certainly can't be pleased with how we have treated the babies and the mothers. And if the fetus, which means baby in Latin, is human, we have missed the greatest opportunity of social justice in our lifetime. If there is no God and evolution is true, we will leave it to the scientists, justices, and politicians to decide who is fit to live. It's a brave new world, Rob. She said, hi, Rob, and this was the day after the election. She was reeling and struggling. She said, hi, Rob, I read your words again this morning and have to tell you that I feel better knowing you on a personal level. I will admit that the presence of the extreme right amongst Trump supporters genuinely frightens me, but unlike many people in journalism like me or those I primarily cover and work with, progressives, I know people like you, and that gives me courage. Congratulations on your win, best, Sharona. And then I concluded with this, and I'll be finished. I said, dear Sharona, the divide of this nation is clear. My sister, liberal lesbian, her declaration, not mine, called me the day after the election to tell me her life partner would not be attending my daughter's wedding because she doesn't want to be in a room with people filled with hate. My sister was in tears, and I too was deeply shaken. My conversation with my sister resulted in our desire to travel the country to share with the public our personal dialogue. The co-author of the book, The Shack, who is my friend and is the producer of the movie of the book, which is coming out in March, is open to writing a book. If brave voices like yours and my sister's willing to be heard and kind enough to listen and bypass rhetoric continue to be heard, we can be used to heal the divide of our country. Your friendship has influenced and inspired me in profound ways. Your fear is real in my heart to listen and dialogue is sincere. I want to make a difference and on, I want to make a difference and only those with the capacity to build bridges can do this. To be a bridge builder, as my sister pointed out, will result in being attacked by both sides of the divide. We are prepared for that and you deserve credit for modeling that for me. Thank you. You're amazing. Love, Rob. Took a lot for her to sit with a right-wing evangelical fundamentalist pro-life minister and be that kind. 
I'm a Christian with the power of God's love. Why in the world would I respond in anger when the Bible commands me to be gentle and peaceable and to speak ill of no one? Stop it. Stop it. We are Christians. And we are salt. And if you want your voice to be heard, it's not by visceral emails and caustic jokes. You gain political capital by making a difference. You vote, you walk, you call, you engage. You find out what are the five issues of each of those council and school board. You know their names, you pray for them. You do good to them. You step into this community. You penetrate and you illuminate. But don't castigate. Build a bridge. Those are good works. They're sustaining. It's for generations to come. It's for our children, if not for you. And your apathy and pietism and moralism are worthless commodities in the world of politics. You're trampled. God says that you and I alone are the salt and the light. And we've just been given a mandate. So let's start doing it. Speak the truth in love. Speak ill of no one. Be peaceable and humble and kind. But by all means, do it. Illuminate in the darkest regions that people can see that truth and want to embrace it and make a city shining on the hill that everyone say, I want my community to be like that one. And may God bless you and strengthen you in the days to come. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is so precious to us, Lord. Lord, thank you for Sharona. Thank you for Ann LaFianza. Thank you for Billy Martin, Betsy Connolly, Peggy Buckles, Sandy Everett. Lord, thank you for Angie Simpson. Thank you for all who would run for office. Think of Israel, Rodriguez. Think of uh, Carrie and, oh Lord, thank you. Bless our leaders, bless our community. Lord, let us penetrate and illuminate the truths of the gospel in such a way that nobody could speak ill of us because we haven't spoken ill of them and we've been peaceable and humble and kind and loving and they want more of what we have. Stop the visceral caustic explosions being thrown over the wall of the divide of the nation and let the body of Christ be salt and light and build these bridges. And Lord, we know we'll face attacks from both sides, but we will build anyways because that's a good work and that glorifies our Father in heaven. Lord, thank you for this fellowship. They have endeavored and endured. They've been so faithful and so good. Encourage them. Let them rejoice in the work you've been doing and continue to do through their lives submitted to you. We've had an impact on the nation, let alone our city. And Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for their encouragement of me and support. And so Lord, I pray that you'd bless and 
and power and touch and comfort. And Lord, we come this morning to worship and glorify and honor you and you alone. That's why we're here. What a good God you are. And in a moment as we sing, Lord, we sing to praise you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.